it's not about good or bad person, right? You are a human being. Some of the actions you do are good. Some of the actions you do are bad. As Dr. Harper talks a lot about this continuum, we are flowing back and forth in between there, maybe doing some good things, maybe doing some bad things. And it's really about giving yourself that grace to learn, work, know that you're unlearning however many years you've been alive and the things that you've experienced and the systems that you've experienced. And you're going to make mistakes. Welcome to Want to Work There, a podcast that explores what really makes a company a great place to work. I'm your host, Jill Falska, and together we'll explore not only what goes into building a great company culture, but also exactly how to implement those best practices within your own workplace. If you're here, you believe that a better world of work is possible, and I can't wait to build it together. Let's go. Welcome back, everybody, to the Want to Work There podcast. My name is Jill Felska, and I am truly, truly excited today to be sitting down with two women who have created a really great resource that I'm excited for you guys to learn more about and to have when you are focused on communications within your organization. So before we dive into all of that and why they created this resource and what is all involved in it, wanted to take a quick second and introduce you to both guests. So Stacy Nordwall is the Director of Employee Experience at PIN, PIN is an employee experience and employee communication company, which is a lot of what we're going to be talking about today in the guide is the importance of that communication when it comes to building intentional culture. So super excited to have her here with us. And then joining her is the co-creator of this guide. And she actually is the co-founder of Critical Diversity Solutions. Her name is Dr. Harper, and I'm so glad to have you here as well. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, thank you both. So one of the things that I knew when I started this podcast is that I really wanted to focus on the practical aspects of how you build employee experience, how you build engagement with focus in a lot of different areas. But one of the things that is near and dear to my heart as a journalism major who now does this type of work is communications. It's such a huge part of helping people understand what's important, helping people understand and feel included. And so when Stacy had emailed me and said, you know, we're doing this inclusive communication guide, I was like, absolutely. When can we talk? I want to hear all the things. <laughs> so tell me a little bit, Stacy, why did you guys decide to create this guide? I was thinking about this last night. I think it was probably in about 2015 or so, when I really started reading more about DEI generally and specifically about DEI in the workplace. And so at that time, I was at CultureAmp. I was an early people team member. And so I was really trying to take what I was learning and apply it to the things that I was building as I was building them. And I got laid off in 2020, right around the time that George Floyd was murdered. And at that time, I thought, wherever I land next, I want to make sure I'm someplace where I have influence and I'm able to use that influence to create an inclusive culture. 
And I was able to land at PIN where some of the first things that I was doing was writing these employee communications that are part of the library we have for our customers that they can send to their employees. And I was thinking to myself as I'm writing these things that these could be received by people all over the globe. And I have no idea who these people are, what their lives are, how can I make sure that what I'm writing is going to be inclusive to them? And I started looking and researching on the internet, trying to find, okay, what is this resource that could help me feel confident that I'm writing something in an inclusive way? And there were a lot of good resources out there that were more specific to words and and specific language and things like, you know, do you use person first language or identity first language? And, And what are the, you know, the terms that you might use to describe certain groups? But I really didn't find something that helped me think through the communication as a whole, kind of went beyond, you know, the specific word usage. And so I was talking to my team at PIN saying, I can't find this. I think we should create it. And luckily, Lexi on our marketing team agreed and said yes. And there is this person, Breeze, Dr. Harper, that I think we should reach out to. And we're very fortunate that she also was interested in this topic. So I'll I'll pass it to Dr. Harper to kind of say like, what made you want to join us, I guess? (laughs) Well, when uh, your team first approached me with the outline, I thought this is a fantastic idea because a lot of what we do at Critical Diversity Solutions goes to the basics of language and communication, but even more so beyond the language in particular words, trying to get people to understand the framework of equity inclusion, that it's not just language, but that there's particular frameworks that need to be employed. What usually needs to happen is a paradigm shift from a certain way of thinking that's usually, but not intentionally, exclusive to a way that is more inclusive and equitable. So it's these frameworks. So when we started working together, I think the guide was first really just focusing on language. And then I remember going through it and then getting back to Stacy and Lexi saying, you know, I think this needs to be more expanded from inclusive communications and language to inclusive communication framework and how we can really think about frameworks and what systems have influenced our consciousnesses in which we're in a place where most of us tend to use exclusive language. So that's why I was excited about it because I enjoy doing critical content editing when it comes to making sure the language is as inclusive and equitable as possible for an organization. I am so excited to dive into this. So excited that I forgot to tell everybody where they can find this guide so that if they're getting ready to listen to this episode and want to be able to see what it is that we're referencing, I want you guys to be able to do that right away. So you're going to want to go to wanttoworkthere.com backslash inclusive communication. And that's going to send you directly to the link to download it from the pin site. But that is where you will find it. It's also going to be in the show notes. So if you are looking and you're on your phone trying to find it, go there. It is an incredible 
incredible resource with a lot in there, which is, I think, Dr. Harper, what you were getting to is you guys really put a lot of meat into this guide. It's not just a sort of high-level, fluffy marketing download. I mean, this is a practical, actionable resource that people can use when they are thinking about this particular topic. Before we get into the kind of content that's in there, who did you write this for? Like, who do you guys see needing to write inclusive communication within an organization? Generally, the idea was any person who's writing communications, and obviously I'm writing it from an HR perspective because that's my lens, that's my experience. So really that is the audience I have. Thinking about all of the different communications that people teams create for their employees. And that goes beyond, I mean, that's really expansive when you think about it. It's like, that's from the offer letter to the exit, everything that you're doing, the policies you're creating, everything, it could have this inclusive lens. So I think as we were writing it, the idea was really that this is something that people teams could use from a a broad perspective. And what I'm finding is Communication is a huge subject (laughs) and people outside of HR could take the framework and apply it to the kinds of communications that they create, be that written, verbal, visual, it's still something that could be applicable. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that people outside of just people teams find it useful. Yeah, likewise, I'm not in HR I'm more broadly just focused on an organization's DE&I needs and how often frameworks that are quite exclusive influence how they communicate. Say they will have us look at their website and then we'll look at the language and the visuals and often get back to them to explain why the way they frame something is exclusive to maybe gender minorities or people whose first language is not English to, well, you have a new product coming out. How are you going to create advertisements for it that are inclusive or as inclusive as possible? So I imagine that this guide, even though it started off mainly for people experience who are working inside and maybe onboarding or exiting, like Stacy was saying, that, well, how can you apply this as a blueprint or a framework to these other sectors that, of course, rely on clear and inclusive communication to get the word out, whether you're trying to, like I said, advertise a new product when you're creating a website and the images and language that you use. So this is more of like, you don't need to go step by step and use it all the way that's written down here, word for word, but it should be just so framework in the way that you think when you go on to the next level or the next sector in which you're going to communicate. I completely know that this guide is going to have such an impact beyond just HR teams. Having spent a lot of time with it, it is an easily applicable thing that, like you're saying, Dr. Harper, can really be used in so many different ways. Websites, product launches, different things like that. I think why I asked the question is people don't typically think about the amount of communication that HR is responsible for. I think Sometimes as companies are growing and they're trying to figure out who owns the messaging, is it the CEO? Do they have an internal 
comms person, usually not right away. And oftentimes you have an HR team who may or may not feel comfortable with communicating, period. That maybe isn't the thing that they were, you know, focused on when they were in school. So I love this idea that as more HR teams and people experience teams are having more direct communication with employees, they have a way to do that that is focused on more equity and and inclusion. So with that said, it takes a lot of time. And I know that even when I was in my director of HR role, you have to spend time and give a lot of thought to messages that you're drafting. And so this guide is showing you how to do that and spend even more time and be even more thoughtful about how you're writing these messages. I guess from your perspective, why should people who aren't already bought in care? What impact can this have on the team? Gosh, I have so many examples just from the clients that we've worked with where there was hesitation, like, what's the point? You know, what does it matter? So let me come from the perspective of marketing a new product or creating a new website. So let's let's look at the marketing of the new product. You want to put a new product out there. And if you use unmindful communication, you're not going to reach out to as many people and potential consumers that you like to. So when you're mindful of the communication and doing the checklist of how inclusive it is, and then the potential consumer receives it, they're going to feel like, oh, I connect to this product because of the mindful language that was used. It's that simple. So they're going to connect to the product more. They're going to want to learn more about it. They're going to support the product. And beyond the textual, we've seen this with visual. I grew up in the 80s and everything that had a human being on it was white. And most of the world is not white. So, you know, that language alone, or when you use language in your text that assumes the buyer is white, or say, in terms of sexual orientation, that they're straight, or in terms of ability that they're able-bodied, you have basically excluded a majority of the world and the potential for your customer base. Also in terms of innovation, when we use more inclusive language, even in a department where you're doing research and development and you need to explain certain things, say you're going to put out a recruiting notice for a position and you're looking for someone to do innovative ideas around product development. If the job posting for that uses language that has a bunch of assumptions about it in terms of who's in research and design, which is usually a white male dominated field, at least here in tech, you're going to exclude the diversity of other candidates who can bring in their own cultural experiences to make products more innovative. So for example, if you're trying to sell cosmetics, the language that is used is assuming everyone has light skin, or if we're talking about hair, everyone's hair is straight, then you're going to probably get people who have those embodied experiences working there versus, well, what if you get someone who has darker skin, who has curlier hair? They can bring their science knowledge and their embodied experience with having darker skin and curly hair into there. But when you have a job description that makes the language exclusive, you're going to miss out on hiring more diverse candidates who can enrich your products and services to create that innovation. So that's kind of the consequences we've seen where our organizations that we've worked with have shift from using exclusive language to convincing when we have this argument, they're kind of tentative employees, you know, why should we use this? And then they make the shift 
And it does take a while when they work with us, but then they start seeing the results that they are recruiting more diverse talent. The diverse talent is staying. They want to stay. There's a lower attrition rate. So those are a few of the examples I can share that are why one should want to buy in or use this if they're not already on board. You know, for me, I was thinking about this again, obviously last night, knowing we're getting together today, that the pandemic rapidly exacerbated existing inequities in the U.S. And I think that that made people who weren't previously aware, probably mostly white folks, they became hyper aware or more aware that these inequities existed because there was such a rapid shift that highlighted them. And I think you kind of take that along with, you know, this trend probably for decades now where labor unions don't have as much power as they did. You don't have as many people who are in unions and many as many employees. The government, you know, shrinking and more power kind of going to companies and organizations. And you take those two things together. And so employees are now looking to companies. Okay, what are you doing about these inequities that exist? What causes are you supporting? Which candidates are you donating money to? And then they're checking in. Okay, what is the company saying? And are their actions matching that? So communication is really foundational there because communication is the insight that employees have into how their companies are thinking about and perceiving the world. Right. And so if the communication is not inclusive and equitable, they're observing the companies and observing that, okay, your language is not inclusive and equitable. You must not be observing the world, perceiving the world, and thinking about it in an inclusive and equitable way. And so that's why it matters. I mean, if you want employees to now that they're really shifting that responsibility onto employers, onto companies to have that impact within our society, then that communication is where it starts. And we're seeing with the data that it's expected. Gen Z millennials, they expect the company's leadership to be inclusive and equitable across the board. It's very important for them. When you look at the survey results, that's very important. That's integrated into the value system and the actions of, of an organization. So if you're you know trying to recruit for the next generation, that's one of the reasons to actually be more inclusive in your language and practice equity inclusive frameworks. There is no question about that. There is going to be less and less tolerance, I think, as the younger generations come into the workplace. And that's actually one of the two quotes, Stacey, that I had pulled out of your guys' entire guide was employees, especially those who are members of marginalized groups, are acutely aware of the difference between what a company says and what a company does. And I think for organizations who did make rather large declarations, whether that was after George Floyd's death or Breonna Taylor, whatever the period was in which someone made a declaration, I, I feel like, and again, Dr. Harper, you probably see examples of this all the time, but what are the day-to-day things that we can be doing to actually uphold that promise that you made to your team? And I feel like this inclusive communication piece is one of those things that can be adopted into the day-to-day and help sort of back up that message. 
This was what actually I experienced after George Floyd was murdered. And this this is an interesting point and question that you're asking. A lot of organizations were determined to show that they supported anti-racism. And they started, of course, with those statements, right? And I was hired often to go through those statements to make sure that the language was on point. The problem was that the organization itself didn't have the structures and processes in place that were creating, at least if we're talking about racial justice, racially equitable outcomes. So one of the ways of which I was understanding how they were trying to communicate is that they were trying to communicate an idea with really good intentions around we uphold anti-racism as one of our values. However, unfortunately, a lot of their structures or policies were still entrenched in biases and assumptions. So say a year later, they were still really struggling to uphold what the statement had said and had communicated to their employees. We know that because when we would do surveys with the employees, they would say, it's great that they made these statements and they communicated this to us, but the communications didn't come along with actual actions that were actually revamping the systems that had been in place for so long to create inequities around not just race and ethnicity, but also gender, ability, sexual orientation, et cetera. So I think that's as we think more about frameworks and how we're using communication, it has to go beyond, ooh, we're using inclusive communication and frameworks to, okay, but does that parallel or align with you actually doing the actions you need to show your commitment to equity inclusion? So that's a lot of challenges that organizations have had. It's not impossible. However, many leadership with good intention thought that we can just do a statement and then this, we can make this happen with maybe a workshop. Or, you know, a few weeks worth of work when, at least here in the United States, such a system that led to George Floyd's murder and others like him took 500 years to build, right? So great. One of the gears in this to making sure we're going toward the arc of justice is inclusive communication, but it goes along with understanding how to put in the policies in place and structures in place in an organization that are truly anti-racist and also, of course, pro-equity and inclusive of other marginalized communities, such as gender minorities, sexual orientation minorities, et cetera. Thank you for bridging that, because I think that is one of the things that people are struggling to articulate is that, you know, there is a growing frustration between the action that hasn't happened and what was said. And so that point about it is the policies, it is the structures, it is everything that has been built. And there's a lot of work there to do. I'm going to have to have you back. We're going to have to do a whole nother set of episodes on all the other pieces. I'll bring us back, I guess, to this particular piece, which is this guide and this framework that's been mentioned a couple times now. So either of you wondering if you can walk us through sort of the steps of the framework that people should be thinking about, or is that too complicated to do via audio? And that should be something that they're looking at the guide for. It depends on how you learn. So I don't know if Stacey wants to chime in as well, but I'm not an oral learner. I have to look at a guide while someone is explaining something. I can generally say that when I'm talking about frameworks, that the framework is where you're mindful and you question your assumptions around maybe the top eight or 10 identity categories that you've been taught about as quote unquote normal in the United States and how that's embedded in systemic oppression. Unfortunately, most people with good intentions don't understand 
these isms in terms of systems, they only understand it on an individual level versus that person who said this or did this auction that's clearly violent is racist or transphobic, et cetera, versus understanding that even if you're not necessarily directly racist or transphobic, et cetera, that your consciousness hasn't been influenced by these systems of oppression for the last 400 years. So the way I collaborated on this book, this guide, is to understand what framework you're working from. And if you haven't already, to start shifting toward being more critical of what has been normalized for certain identities, what certain identities have been afforded privileges and power, and how we can shift to, okay, so we know, at least here in the United States, there are particular identities across the board that have historically been marginalized. So how can I understand my own unconscious biases, which that itself is its own training, and become literate and competent around the systemic oppression and how it's affecting my communication in terms of the assumptions I've made by particular human identities and transition to a framework that is exclusive and it's a behavior that I'm constantly being mindful of. So it's a behavior, it's a practice. So that's the framework. And it can be difficult for most of us even myself, who's been doing diversity, equity, inclusion work for like over 15 years, I still have to catch myself. I still have to remember, I have to practice and keep on doing it, practice and keep on moving forward. So that's like the overall general principle of that framework that I brought, I think, to this collaboration. And then Stacey also had her own unique perspective and way of dealing with how you engage a framework that is mindful and inclusive and to teach people that it's a continuum. And that you have to make mistakes, be accountable, have humility, and keep on moving forward. So that's the way I'm explaining and guiding us through this framework. And then we use particular examples like, Stacey, you can talk about you know, that the first onboarding message that we put in the guidebook that basically breaks down by identity and other assumptions. This is the first one that came out. Now let's look at it or observe it again and figure out what was exclusive and why and how we can change it so it can be more inclusive for the employee who's being onboarded. Yeah, I think to Dr. Harper's point, when we were going through this, it was important to us to recognize that it is this mindset shift that we're asking people to go through. And it is really about broadening the lens that you're using when you're thinking about communications. And it is a thought process. We all have the whatever, however long we've lived, we have those built-in thought processes from what we've experienced and those are our defaults. And so what we're trying to do is give people questions that they can ask themselves to help them make that mindset shift. And each time they do it, maybe they'll notice something different. They'll have learned something different. They'll be able to tweak it again. And it's really that kind of tool ask yourself these questions and then start creating the framework. And so I think it might be a a little challenging for folks if we talked through the entire framework right now. I also am a bit more of a, a visual learner, but I can say the five questions that we have that we ask people to go through. And there is some of them I think are, well, they all get you to think through different aspects. Some I think require you to go a little bit deeper for what Dr. Harper was saying about assumptions and about, you know, getting a little bit deeper into understanding 
what the different isms might be that you need to be mindful of. So the questions within the framework that we're asking people to go through when they're thinking about their communication is what is the best format? What should the tone be? What is the outcome they want? Who is the audience? And what assumptions might they be making? And we also developed as part of this a default reader profile, because I know if this is not work that you're doing all the time or or you're a bit newer to it, you're not even sure what assumptions you're making or what groups to even be thinking about. And so we also included this resource that's a default reader profile. And I know Dr. Harbour can talk more about this that really outlines different demographic groups. And it's also a blueprint, right? Because if you're accessing this and you're in France, you might not be using the same demographic variables you would be using if your employee base was all in the U.S., right? Like there would be different things that you would be thinking through. The reader profile helps people go through the different variables and think, okay, is this a group that, you know, in order to expand my lens, I need to make sure that I'm addressing a group and not having my message be assuming that someone is able-bodied or assuming that someone is, you know, of a certain religion or something like that. So the resources there are really meant, it's not going to just tell you, you do X, Y, Z, you've checked the boxes, you got an inclusive communication. It requires you to think through it. Yeah. And, you know, we offer people to be gentle with themselves because it is practice. And with the default reader profile, it may change two years from now because, demographic information will change about who is most marginalized. Uh, power structures and economic you know, structures change, and then it will affect the capacity for a particular demographic to thrive or not. Part of that is this process is understanding that, once again, diversity, equity, inclusion is a continuum. And like any discipline, because diversity, equity, inclusion is a discipline, just like if you're going to do software programming or you know, you're becoming a nurse, and those disciplines have updated best practices, they have updated technologies that you constantly have to implement into your professional life so you can be up to speed on X, Y, and Z that will give you the most effective outcome. So with this guide, a lot of people have asked, well, I don't know about these systems that you're talking about, or I don't know what demographic could be the most marginalized. Thankfully, there are many institutions that are already doing that research using qualitative and quantitative data. And one of them that I enjoy suggesting is the UC Berkeley's Institute for Othering and Belonging. And every year they come out with the Inclusiveness Index, which I think it looks at or observes, see, I I caught myself, observes and analyzes scores of countries to show us on a yearly basis how economic and social factors have changed to the point that we will now realize that, say, these four or five demographics are the most vulnerable. You know, they have one for the United States and they have one for many other countries. And that's very helpful. So you can understand from a nation or systems approach, this is what's going on. So now how does that affect how I'm thinking about communication and how I'll create a default profile, right? So there's that element. There's also the understanding that you are not necessarily the whole nation is the same. So regionally, you know, that particular region, can we hone in on that to get more information? And then maybe I'm in a particular sector 
where perhaps it's IT or perhaps it's publishing. So how can we get the data from that sector that also tells us which demographics are underrepresented? So it's that. So the information is there, but you know, we help the readers to understand how to get to the point where they have that information so they can then go and create those default reader profiles. So you don't have to do all that research yourself. There's already the information there to help you on your way. And you guys have done an incredible job in pointing people to other resources on top of the one that you've already created. There is a plethora of incredible links. And that's another thing that I really appreciate about what you guys have done, along with the fact that not only is it in writing, it is also audio. So there are different ways that you can consume the material depending on what is best for you. And so I encourage everybody to go and download this guide for so many reasons. But even if you're not in a position where you're writing a lot of communication regularly, there is so much there to sort of look at and unpack Being a great manager is hard. Like, really hard. I used to preach that it was every company's duty to provide management training for their entire team. But then I became a director of people and culture for a SaaS startup and realized just what kind of barriers were in the way. Design the training in-house? I could never find the time. Hire a third party to come and teach it? Sure, but then I'd need to re-engage them every time a new manager joined, and I just didn't have the budget for that kind of long-term engagement. In my head, I envisioned the startup version of management training, a self-led, reusable program that consisted of audio lessons, thoughtful exercises, helpful templates, and an internal facilitation plan for cohort-style learning. So I built it. And it quickly became apparent that I wasn't the only person looking for a more cost-effective, scalable solution. If you also fall into that camp and want to learn more, you can visit wanttoworkthere.com backslash management training. That's wanttoworkthere.com backslash management training. All right, let's get back to the show. You know, there's an example that is given at the beginning of the guide as you start to think about this framework. And it talks about, like you said, Stacey, that onboarding email. So thinking about an email that goes out to an individual on the very first day, excuse me, before the first day that they're going to arrive at the office. And if you work in people ops, these are pretty standard. You've probably written one. You've probably sent one out. And by using the five questions and sort of taking you through what is a pretty common email, they we're able to sort of showcase some of the things that may not be thought about and how the communication can be more inclusive. And the two that stuck out to me the most, because I was like, never have I thought about that. Literally never occurred to me, was one, if someone is not able-bodied, where is their accessible building access for them? And where is that located? And how would they find that? And including that. And also, If you are talking about a meal on the first day, hey, we're going to go out to lunch with the team, just assuming that people have the money to pay for that and that they are going to be ready and willing to pay for that. And so instead saying, we are excited to treat you to lunch on your first day so that you don't have to be doing that mental work if you're the new employee about wow, I'm already anxious now going in because I don't know how to get into the building if I'm not able-bodied. I don't 
know if I'm going to be asked to pay for this lunch and what does that look like? I think these are the lenses as you guys are talking about that. And I don't know if lens is the right word, but is that the right word? Let me just ask, what would you say? Not lens, but... I use frames, but that's I'm a social scientist. So we're, we're always using the language. What is your frame or framework? So lens, I'm not sure because not. I think of the eyes and the lens and visual able-bodied people. So I don't know if that is as inclusive. I think I do use lens and I hadn't really thought about it in terms of an eye. I probably thought about it more in terms of like cameras, which I guess is still visual. <laughs> I think of it just in terms of trying to get people to understand that idea of broadening, right? And that it really is about this expansion of however you are perceiving something and just opening up to the expansiveness of it. Yeah. I think I mentioned one of the examples that I've had with a a client who asked for help looking at, this is what our startup is, and then we're describing where it's located. And he was really excited. And he had described that we are located in a safe area, blah, blah, blah. And I thought the whole concept around safe is not innocent because at least here in the United States, a safe neighborhood almost always means if you're white, you're going to be safe here. So if you're someone who wants to work at a startup that may be in a historically, a historic sundown town has issues with racial profiling, who is it safe for then? So, you know, just getting a lot of people with good intentions to think about that. Well, who is it safe for? And then we think about gender minorities and those who are more vulnerable in terms of, unfortunately, harassment or assault, sexual harassment or assault, right? So is that safe for a woman or a femme presenting human being if they want to work late and go home? And then the leader that I was working with, I mean, they had seven levels of privilege. I mean, able-bodied, white, Ivy League man, you know, all this stuff that he never had to think about that. He just thought about this startup being in what mainstream media have said is a safe and awesome neighborhood without really looking at, well, for who? And I think who you're trying to communicate this to, if you're trying to attract a more diverse candidate pool, I think they're going to need to know it. So you're going to need to put in that message, you know, a little more information about what you mean or even leave out the word safe. I think you bring up a really good point, which is that sometimes people just shy away from this completely because they're scared of saying the wrong thing. Like I truly, even during this episode, have been like a little bit in overdrive going, did I say that right today? Like, what was the thing? And Michelle Kim has this incredible book. And it one of the things that I took away from it was anti-racism or being anti-racist is not something you achieve. Like, it is a continual thing that we are working towards and learning and continuing to be. And I think that, for me, was a really helpful way to look at it because it made it easier for me to feel like I could screw up and say something like the intention is always that I'm saying the best thing I could possibly say and that is as inclusive as possible for as many groups as possible. But the reality is that's not always going to happen. It just isn't privilege, all the different things. So how do you guys approach or talk to you? So like I'm thinking about that founder and like him getting that feedback and like, was he super receptive and open to that? Did he feel a lot of shame? Everybody has different reactions, but how have both of you experienced people's reluctance to maybe lean in because they're afraid they're going to get it wrong? Well, I think I know 
if you're talking about the wake up, is that the the book you're referencing? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I read that as well. And there's one thing in there. I think we might have even pulled a quote from that book into the guide. There's one thing that really particularly stuck with me was the idea of part of why people can get that reluctance is because it's they take it as oh this means. I'm a good person or a bad person. It it goes to like that sense of identity. And what she says in the book is it's not about good or bad person, right? You're a human being. Some of the actions you do are good. Some of the actions you do are bad, you know? And it's this, as Dr. Harper talks a lot about this continuum, we're not always on one, one side of the spectrum or the other. We are flowing back and forth in between there, maybe doing some good things, maybe doing some bad things. And it's really about giving yourself that grace to learn, work, know that you're unlearning however many years you've been alive and the things that you've experienced and the systems that you've experienced And you're going to make mistakes. And I think you've heard us a number of times throughout this recording, correct ourselves, find ourselves using language we didn't want to use. This is often why I prefer written communication, (laughs) because it gives me that opportunity to reflect and, and change things. But you're hearing us do that in real time, essentially. I think that's part of it. I know Dr. Harper has experience with a number of clients and can probably talk to all kinds of different things. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, you can't control how people receive the wisdom or information that you gift them. However, you can offer ways to guide them towards shifting from the binary way of thinking to like Stacey was saying, continuum. But also it's most of the people I work with are leaders and they're mostly white. And yes, the white guilt thing comes in, but there's also the, the fear that people are going to think I'm racist and I'm ignorant. And to be fair, in the United States, we live in a culture that is a discipline and punish culture, You know, not just in terms of the prison industrial complex, but just the way we treat others when mistakes are made. I suggest to clients that we shift into just a culture of we're all going to make mistakes because you can't transform unless you create opportunities out of those mistakes and be accountable. So if you're in an organization where you're trying to do this work of inclusive and equitable communication frameworks and overall just, you know, a holistic DEI program, you have to have a culture that understands transformation plus accountable when the mistakes are made and humility and creating actionable plans around that in a culture where it's call in versus call out or cancel. Very rarely, I think, does canceling work. But what we need to really shift into is that continual mindset and the accountability piece is really important. And a lot of leaders who do make mistakes, though they had good intentions, they don't really even know how to issue an apology and then put actions that show that they really truly have regretted what they've done. And then another thing that we've encountered often from leadership, when they're kind of hit with the reality that, oh my gosh, I'm not as inclusive as I want to be. There's this feeling of, I'm feeling unsafe. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling unsafe. I'm unsafe versus discomfort. So what most people are feeling is discomfort. Discomfort is natural when you're going through the process of conscientization, changing your frameworks and shifting as you're going toward becoming more mindful of how you are as a human being. So a lot of times people mistake 
the discomfort they're feeling as I'm unsafe. And I've had one or two clients literally tell me, when you convey the information to us after you did a climate assessment survey, when you did the audit, I felt really unsafe. And they were white. And I had to say, I'm glad that you've shared this with us. I don't want to dismiss your emotions. However, the way you're feeling may not necessarily be fact. So let's describe the difference between unsafe and discomfort. Let's think about that. And then I want you to get back to me if you feel comfortable. Now that I've explained the differences, do you think you're still unsafe or is it discomfort that you're not used to because of your privileged position for so long? You've never had to deal with the discomforts that come to you when you're being called in to ask to participate and find your role in dismantling the system. So that's the question that I've had. And that has been more effective. It's not always, you know, 100%. But I think making that shift to let people know it's a continuum. Yeah, your emotions are real. And to be honest, to be fair, research shows when we're talking about racial privilege in white people, most white people were not taught in their households or even socially to deal with discomfort when they are confronted with issues around racial injustice. They're told to be silent, keep the peace, don't talk about it. And then when they're finally confronted with it, many of them never had the tools to deal with those emotions going on, the natural emotions that come when you're struck with something that, oh my gosh, I thought I was better than that. I thought I had good intentions, but I may actually be part of the problem. That doesn't feel good. There's this wonderful book that I recommend to everyone if they're interested in the communications aspect plus racial justice. It's called Combined Destinies. And it's a book that is an anthology of mostly white people from the baby boomer age who talk about when they first realized that despite me thinking I'm a good white person, I actually collude with racism. And it goes through the natural process that most of us go through when we're hit with shocking news or realization, anger, denial, depression, all the stuff. And that's how the chapter is all to the end where it's like acceptance and how I move and on and take action. I think that's a great framework for any of us, whether we're talking about how to go through those emotions of racial privilege to, you can translate that if you have gender privilege, right? Or able-bodied privilege. So that's how it helps you get through it. So that was probably a long answer because that's how my brain works. But those are the suggestions we've offered and it's been helpful as long as there's compassion, accountability, humility, and understanding we're on a continuum. Thank you for that because I feel like Well, and I should just say, I hope it didn't sound like I was putting their response on you. I just, I've been in that room with those very privileged people, I mean, myself included, and have watched and felt different reactions. And I think giving that example of unsafe versus discomfort, were those the two words, unsafe versus discomfort? Yeah, that is amazing (laughs) tool that I think people, like you bring it back to the thinking part of it more than the feeling part of it so that someone can get a little more grounded because I think that's where people get off track. But yeah, I genuinely appreciate that. And I know that my listeners will appreciate that as well because I have definitely had a lot of conversations with people about I'm invested in this. I feel like I'm doing as much work as I can. And my white male CEO just doesn't buy into it. And I don't always feel like I can articulate why it matters or why they should care or react to different scenarios when they come up. So I think that'll be a really, really great tool for people. One of the things that Stacey and I remember we talked about last week during the webinar is asking, you know, why should people do this? And some people just need to be convinced that because the bottom line, you know, you'll just, you'll increase profit. 
that often helps and that has been shown that profit and innovation are increased. But it's also important to mention that people who are minoritized or marginalized don't necessarily want to hear that you're only tolerating me because we're increasing your bank account, that we want you to actually have a moral shift in your framework that you're doing this because it's the humane and moral thing to do. So I think the messages until recently have been, it's good for the bottom line. It creates innovation. But how about it's just really great if you're a human being that morally you should be treating me equitably as another human being. And I want to know that that's why you're engaging in diversity, equity, inclusion in the organization, because it's not just in your head or how you're looking at your bank account. It's literally gone to your heart and action. And we've received a lot of this type of information from the surveys that we do when we're surveying organizations and the employees come back with that feedback and as well as just the best practices and the data that's showing that let's move beyond the bottom line. Though it may be an argument to persuade a lot of hesitant leadership to go that direction, how can we also create training curriculum, persuasive arguments that also show the heart aspect as well? Hugely, hugely important. And like you said at the very beginning, Gen Z and millennials, they will leave. The money is not always the biggest thing for many in that group. And it is just going to become more and more apparent, I think, to leadership teams as they start to see that shift as these younger these younger leaders start to come up in the organizations. Okay, we have kind of talked about a, a bunch of different things, and I will absolutely be linking out all the books, all the research, and most importantly, the guide, because I cannot say it enough, you guys, as someone who nerds out over guides and frameworks and things that people can use, this is so well done. <laughs> you need to go download this guide. It is incredible. It is going to make a huge impact on you, whether you are an individual contributor or a CEO or anywhere in between. I just, I cannot stress enough that I really think you should go download it immediately. So I guess to wrap up, and we didn't get into this as much, but there are definitely different types of communications. There's that one-off communication that happens, you know, sometimes from a CEO when an event happens or a launch happens. There is the continual communication that happens from like an onboarding perspective or a company update perspective. There's a lot of different types of communication that happen within an organization. If someone is thinking about where do I start? Because oftentimes, I know for me especially, I get overwhelmed with all. Like, I'm going to do the whole thing and we're going to, you know, we're going to change all the different pieces and it's going to be amazing. But like, holy heck, where do we start? So what is your recommendation in terms of kind of the best way for people to maybe dip their toe in and start thinking about this type of work? Well, we provided, again, because it's my frame, right? Thinking about HR folks and my experience, we provided the example of an onboarding message within the guide because that's something that tends to go out pretty frequently. It's something you already have written. So I think when you're first starting off, it can be maybe easier to take something you've already written and then go through the questions and make adjustments as opposed to starting from scratch. And it's something that you send out frequently. So there is that potential for it to be a high impact message. And so that's what I recommended for folks. But as we were talking about and Breeze was talking about, there's written communication, verbal communication, visual, et cetera, and maybe where you start. And if you're in a different industry, you're not a people person, you're not going to start with an onboarding message. Dr. Harper, you have probably other recommendations for where people might start. 
Yeah, it just depends what your department or your sector is and what your intentions are. But I think fundamentally, we have to start with getting more information about our frameworks and our unconscious biases. So that's incredibly helpful. I do think the example in the book is helpful to start, even if you're not doing onboarding messages, because it's practice. You know, these are practice pieces. You know, to be fair, I apply this to when I'm reading my children their books, or we even are watching a movie, which they don't necessarily like to watch a movie with me all the time because of that. But I'll say that, you know, let's use this as practice. And then that helps me with my own practice when I go back to clients who may want to become more equitable and inclusive in their marketing language or in their recruitment language. So I think starting is just starting with practice. Practice that. In the guide, there is that initial message that we provide as a example on how to start thinking more inclusively and equitably. Also, educate yourself around what we what we mean by assumptions and unconscious biases, which there is plenty of data out there that talks about that. And kind of go from there. And just the thing is, it's, you have to create a habit and you're not going to create the change overnight. It has to be a habit. And I, I like using the example that I started playing the piano when I was four. Flash forward 40 years later, I'm not a concert pianist because I stopped practicing. You know, you have to keep on practicing. I had kids 14 years ago, stopped, tried to go back to a year ago, darn, you know, it's like I was four years old again. So if you don't keep on practicing and doing the small things like in piano, maybe you you, you learn scales, but I want to play at Carnegie Hall next week. No, you have to start with these particular things to actually build your competencies and literacies around what you want to achieve. So that's basically what I would suggest. Small, consistent practice over time. I want to just reinforce it is not a workshop. <laughs> if you are going down that direction, it is not just one workshop. And there is a ton of information out there and we'll link to a lot of it. This just came to me and maybe we'll include it, maybe we won't. But one of the pieces that I have always struggled with is saying, hey guys, hey guys, hey guys, what's up? Like, and I know it and it's still, I still write it. And that was something that it was the intention it was like the noticing of, and that's just one little small example, but I'd be curious because I know I hear this from other people too. Do either of you or both of you have a better recommendation than starting emails with, hey guys? I think I have gone down the route of either just saying hello or hi or hey folks or hey y'all, or if it's depending on the, if I'm writing to a specific group, it'll be like, hey whatever team or something of that nature, you know, I understand because I think, Hey guys, I didn't used to notice it. And then once I did, I couldn't unnotice it and it would irk me. (laughs) So it's one of those things over time, you just make those adjustments. And I, I will probably be trying not to say dude, when I talk to people for the rest of my life, it is ingrained. I have said it for 30 plus years. And I don't know that I will ever be able to stop, but I try. (laughs) Yep. Notice, course correct. And I think that is probably the best way to think about all of this. Like you just said, Dr. Harper, like it is the noticing and the continual practice. And as we know better, we do better. Yeah. And be compassionate with yourself. That's the thing. Again, a discipline and punished society, we even internalize that, you know, and a lot of us get stuck because of that. So just 
make the correction and move on. I also have certain words that I have to remember. Oh no, it's not this anymore. I usually say, Hey everyone. And depending on, you know, the social space, workplace space, I will often say y'all as well, you know, Hey y'all or folks, which is I think popular with a lot of black folk, F O L X. So we can make sure that we're talking about kind of our own communities and making sure we're talking about many different genders and stuff. So it just kind of depends. But once again, that goes back to just gaining the literacy around certain words and remembering and habits. I had a client who he's in his sixties and he he's like, I get in trouble for greeting women as sweetheart, but that's just what we said in the sixties and I don't mean anything. And when we were actually on a meeting, he had greeted me with, what do you think, sweetheart? Then he's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I did it again. You know, but he caught himself. And then I understood you've been doing this for 63 years. So at least you caught yourself, you're humble about it. You're making the correction and now you're moving on. And I think for the most part, that's the best that most of us can do. I completely agree. As someone who it took 34 years to figure out that I was gay, my family is now all trying to like, they're like, I did I just offend you? I'm like, nope, no. And like, I know your intentions are great. And here, let's figure out the better way to say that <laughs> together. So yeah, when the intention is there and you're showing that the intention is there, I think that there is a lot of space for grace from a lot, most people. Uh, well, thank you for doing this. We are certainly going to be getting the word out about all the different resources. But like I said, most importantly, go download this guide. Go ahead and go to wanttoworkthere.com backslash inclusive communication. And you will have all the links that take you to both the PIN website to download their guide, as well as some of the other links that we've mentioned on the show today. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. This show was brought to you by wanttoworkthere.com and the incredible team at Podcasting for Creatives. No individual or company acting alone can change our societal beliefs about work, but together we can create a new normal. If you like this episode, please consider passing it on to one or two people who share your passion for creating a better world of work. And until next time, please know I see you, I believe in you, and keep going. The work you're doing really matters.